Hey friends, if you've ever listened to my podcast before, you know that we're always welcoming new members into our global recovery community, the Recovery Collective. 2022 is going to be a big year for us with even more amazing guest workshops, cook-alongs, yoga, peer support, and group coaching. If you've been thinking of joining, now is the time because we will be closing membership doors on February 2nd. This means you will have less than a month to join until we open our membership doors again in June. With that being said, please join the membership today and feel connected and inspired in your recovery by a community of professionals and friends who care about you. I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the podcast, and I will see you inside the collective on February 2nd. You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello everyone. Today's guest is Reagan Chastain. Reagan is a speaker, writer, trained researcher, and thought leader in weight science, weight stigma, and the health at every size paradigm. Utilizing her background in research methods and statistics, Reagan has brought her signature mix of humor and hard facts to college, corporate, conference, and healthcare audiences from Amazon to Google. Reagan has been a guest speaker inside the Recovery Collective and plans to return in 2022. In this episode, we talk about her journey to body acceptance and how she became an activist within the fat acceptance and health and every size movements. We also talk about medical fat phobia and how harmful it is and what is being done to help those in larger bodies get the care they need. I promise that you are going to love this episode and learn a lot from it. So sit back and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. I am beyond thrilled today to be connecting with a guest who I just love chatting with. Her name is Reagan Chastain. She is absolutely amazing, and she was actually part of our collective this past year and had a great impact on our community. So, Reagan, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I am completely thrilled to be here. Yay, me too. I was just telling Reagan, by the way, that I was, I audibly said, yay, right before I got on the Zoom call, because I just love chatting with Reagan. She's always enlightening to me. I all, Reagan, I always learn so much from you. (laughs) You do amazing work. I'm just always happy anytime I get to be a little part of it. So thank you. Oh, thanks. The feeling is mutual. Today... I wanted to have everyone listening learn about Reagan's journey. And when I was doing research for this podcast episode, I went through Reagan's blog. And Reagan is a 
fabulous writer. And what she wrote was, my greatest, greatest accomplishment was to be learning to love myself and my body and to be truly happy living outside the cultural beauty norm. And I found that to be really moving and special, especially just the way you said it was something I think a lot of people in my audience struggle with. My intention of this call today was to learn how you got to that point of truly loving yourself. I wanted to ask you, Reagan, how did it start? Like, what was it like when you were a kid or maybe a teenager and you felt like you were outside of this beauty norm, this cultural beauty norm? Yeah, so I was always kind of a bigger kid, but I was also a pretty successful athlete. And so I think I didn't get the kind of body shaming that I normally would have. Also, we moved around a ton and I went to a lot of tiny schools. My graduating class, I think, had 37 kids in it total. Wow. It was very different. When you live in rural Montana, like there's not, I think as much pressure to be like cool or wear the latest fashions or like when you have chores on a ranch before school, it's just not like Fendi, Gucci, not a thing. I was aware of the beauty norm, but not to the extent. And then when I went to college at the university of Texas, that's when I really became aware of like where I fit in on the beauty norm and how important it was to people to meet these standards of that, you know, it, turns out are completely rooted in like these oppressive systems of thinness, able-bodiedness, whiteness, et cetera. When I was a kid, I don't think I realized it quite as much. Well, that's a, that's a blessing, I think, to be kind of out of, <laughs> out of that hellhole that many of us are forced into at a very young age. Yeah. That, that's great to hear that you didn't have to have those really impressionable years in, in that uncomfortable place. When you went to college, what was it like for you when you had the realization that people around you are way more superficial and judgmental about size and fat phobic? My junior year of high school, at the end of my junior year, my friend's mom, who I, I, I'm certain was well-intentioned with this, uh, said to me, you know, you're going to lose that weight next year, right? Like you don't want to go to college fat, do you? And it, really impacted me previously. I hadn't really thought much about like dieting and losing weight. And afterwards I thought about very little else. And so I went from dieting to that, you know, the familiar spiral down to disordered eating and then to a full-blown eating disorder that between like my junior or between my senior year, my freshman year of college, Mm -hmm. I was not in a great mental space around it. I collapsed in a gym. I was briefly hospitalized and I was lucky in that my recovery behaviorally was incredibly fast, incredibly atypical, mm-hmm. but I was still, because I was bigger, I was always bigger, right? The doctors were telling me that I still had to lose weight to be healthy, even as I was being treated for an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And I can remember a doctor saying, don't go crazy like you did before, but you're a naturally bigger person. So you're going to have to worry about this for your whole life. Wow. That is <laughs> devastating, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, it's an all too common experience. And it's obviously what I wish I had heard him say was you're a naturally bigger person. I could have saved myself years of strife had I actually keyed into that part of it and been like, oh, wait, there are naturally bigger people. (laughs) And like, maybe we should just celebrate the diversity of body sizes and try instead of trying to like somehow get us all to not be bigger. Mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But I did not at the time. And so it set me up for years of the kind of the focus. I've never been like a big fashion person. Yeah. 
my focus for me in terms of fitting with the beauty norm was around thinness specifically. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where I centered my efforts and my focus and my goals. I think many people listening could relate to that moment where you're recovering in a larger body and then people are still giving you those confusing messages about weight loss still. Yeah. I mean, you hear about it from people in treatment where everybody goes to get ice cream as a challenge food, but they're told to eat less ice cream than the other folks in their treatment program. Like the ways that weight stigma is inherent right now and perpetuated by eating disorders treatment community is a huge barrier of reco- to recovery for people in larger bodies, but to everybody. Because if you're saying to people with eating disorders, oh, it's acceptable to behave differently so you're not fat, that simply reinforces the behaviors right. that they're choosing to do, right? So it becomes mm-hmm. a spiral where it's impacting everybody's ability to recover fully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That must have been so frustrating to experience just having to deal with weight stigma in the medical world during recovery. At the time, I just didn't know any better. I mean, this is in like the yeah. mid nineties, the, you know, the internet wasn't even a big, as big, like as it is now where you can like find a lot of community and easily and stuff. And so I didn't, that seemed normal to me. Mm-hmm. Right. I was like, yep, you're right. Like, <laughs> even though I had sort of proven that at an extreme level, I could not get down to the weight that they thought I should be. Mm-hmm. I was still like, yep, got it. We'll continue to thrive. And I'm just incredibly lucky that I didn't have a full relapse through all the years of dieting that followed. Right. I, a lot of my story is a lot of luck and privilege. And I always want to acknowledge that because it could have gone very differently. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. At that point, had you fully accepted that you were living in a naturally larger body or were you in denial? Oh, I was not remotely accepting of that. (laughs) No, I was. And in fact, like, this is how I got into health at every size. For years, I was doing like whatever weight loss method doctors recommended to me. And I would have the experience that I later learned almost everybody does, right? I'd lose a little weight short term and then gain it back often more than I lost. And the doctor would either tell me that I couldn't have possibly been doing it right. And like, I had an eating disorder. I can measure my food. Like this is a skill set. Unfortunately I developed, but I was in this program. It was like a medically supervised program. And I was actually being given less food to eat than I had been eating at the worst part of my eating disorder, but I was not allowed to do any kind of movement at all. Mm. And I should have been like, huh, that's not right. But I wasn't, you know, I just really felt like I obviously can't make decisions for me, but I was gaining weight on this program. And so I finally had had enough and I went into quit and I, I, you know, told the lady counter, I I quit and I, you know, stopped charging me. And she was like, oh, you, you can't quit. And I was like, no, no, I'm pretty sure I can. And so she's like, well, let me just talk. So she puts me in this little room with this huge poster about not quitting. It was literally that kitten on a rope that says, hang in there, baby. I'm sitting here, this kitten on a rope. And this woman comes in, she's like a quote unquote counselor with the program, right? She's got a binder full of pictures of fat women, just kind of hanging out, being fat. And she starts flipping through it. And after a few flips, she says, maybe you don't know it, but this is what you look like. And these women are going to die alone in front of the TV eating bonbons. And is that what you want for your life? And aren't you tired of hating your body? Wow. 
I know. Right. Like, and I think about now, like, cause I've told this story at this point so many times that like, there's no emotional impact anymore. There's just mm-hmm. the psychological awareness of how out of control and appropriate this was, but like how mm-hmm. many people got this speech and were like, you're right. For me, some cool things happened. First of all, I was like, wait, this is what I look like. Like, I thought I looked so much quote unquote worse than the people in those pictures. <laughs> and so it wasn't like my ultimate goal of body, but I was, I had that first inkling of like, well, if I don't hate their bodies, I have no problem with them. Why do I hate myself so much? If this is what I look like. And then again, rural Montana, I didn't know what a bomb bomb was that went right over my head, <laughs> but I was like, I am tired of hating my body. Like you're like, I'm exhausted. I had been for years hating my body. Like it was a job. Like I was getting paid for it and I wasn't happier. I wasn't healthier. I wasn't thinner. I was just miserable and tired. And I was like, thank you so much. She said, oh, you're welcome. And you can pick up your bars at the counter. I was like, no, I quit. Like it's you and the kitten hanging in there. I'm gone. But like, thank you. And so I went to my car and what I decided, the sort of life-changing decision in that moment was to to create a two-part plan. And part one was I was going to learn to love my body no matter what. I had no idea how to do it, but I just decided like this, because this whole becoming thin to like myself was not working out for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I still thought like, oh, and then I'll have to like figure out how to lose weight to be healthy, but I'm going to do that as part two later. Mm-hmm. And so of course that became like a two-part journey where I just like stopped this idea of trying to alter my body for a little bit to give myself space to learn to appreciate it. Wow. Even though that lady was totally out of hand, I love that it showed you the, like the gaps or kind of like where her mindset wasn't matching up with yours and, and also matching up, but it wasn't landing the way she wanted it to. Like you were like, yeah, I'm so sick of hating my body. Thank you for bringing that up. And I actually love the way these women look. And I am kind of flattered that you're telling me (laughs) I look like that. Yeah. And it was interesting because I had been doing, like I did activism my whole, like I led my first protest in kindergarten, but I had been doing like a lot of queer and trans activism work in college. And like, I totally understood as a queer person, I could see the, the ways that oppression was working and had conditioned me to think about certain things. But where, when it came to fatness, I did not, like I had, it took me so much longer to get that awareness. And like the fact, I think that she was so wildly inappropriate mm-hmm. really helped me to be like, wait, like it was the thing that caused a little short circuit in my brain to be like, hold on, this, something is wrong here. And like, you need to explore that. Mm. So was that when you first really recognized that there was, I'm sure you knew that there was always weight stigma and fat phobia, but was that when you really like saw it clearly in life since you had lived in rural Montana? I think it was more that like, I was aware that fat people were mistreated, but I did not think about it as a form of systemic oppression. Even then that took a much longer time. So I was still thinking about it as like, I'm going to learn to love my body. Like, even though, you know, it's a bad body or wrong body or whatever. Like I wasn't fully letting go of that idea or like a quote unquote unhealthy body. Like I was still in a very like healthiest place about that. But I was like, before I do anything about my size, I have got to fix where I am with my own personal. So at the time I really thought about it as a personal journey Mm. and I wasn't 
thinking about it as like a systemic oppression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That must have been very powerful to eventually get to that point. You know, first of all, the to be able to get to the point of self-love and body acceptance in that moment is a huge lifelong victory in itself. If you stopped there, that would be an amazing place to, to end up. But I love that you were able to transition and transform into a person who is able to see that this is a form of systematic oppression. And my whole life, I was kind of blind to it. So how did you start seeing it as that? I went through this really personal journey and like sitting in my car outside that weight loss clinic, I was trying to figure out somewhere to start Mm -hmm. anywhere, right? I had no, literally no idea how to like my body. And so I hit upon the idea that like I had spent so much time hating it for essentially not looking like a Photoshop picture of someone else that I hadn't had any gratitude for what it did for me. Mm. And so I went home and I wrote this huge list of everything I could think that my body did. And like granularly, like breathing, blinking, waste management, cell division, like whatever. And then like smiling, waving, like everything I could think of. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I would, I became conscious of my thoughts about my body. And every time I had a negative one, I would replace it with gratitude from literally anything from the list. Mm. Right. So like, Oh, I hate this body, but like, no, no, wait, like, thank you for breathing. You're killing it with breathing. I really appreciate it. Super important. Shouldn't be in charge. I lost my keys three times. If I was in charge of breathing today, like we would be dead. So thanks. (laughs) Great job. It sounds hokey and it probably is, but it really fundamentally changed my relationship with my body Mm. to where I got to a point where I thought of like my body and myself as like a partnership. Mm. Mm. Cause like, I would not have allowed people to talk to my friends, the way I talked about my body and let other people talk about my body. I realized like, here's this body that's doing all of these things for me all the time, even though I've treated it like crap and it deserves my full-throated support. And so I know for a lot of people, they like to think of themselves as an integrated whole. And that is totally valid for me. It helped me to think of it as like me and my body in this partnership, because I treated my friends better than I treated myself. Mm. Yes. That really fundamentally changed my relationship with my body itself. But I was still really like the, the part where I get to activism is like down the road where I, you know, understanding, cause I still just thought of it as like a me thing. Yeah. That's the first work you have to do. That's like the primary work you have to do right before you can really step into the activist role is you have to believe it within yourself. Right. And I just didn't, I wasn't aware of like fat activist community. Mm. there have been people doing this work since the 60s since long before I was born but for whatever reason I hadn't been connected into those communities or been aware of them and so it felt like very individual work like queer community I came out into a community Mm. where I was like aware of the history and aware of the work that was people were doing and I could research but for this I just didn't even think to look because it felt so personal then so I got to this really great place with my you know, sense of self and my relationship with my body. And I was like, all right, well, now it's time to like lose weight, to be healthy. Mm. My background in school was research methods and statistics. Mm -hmm. I realized I had never looked up any research on any of the diets that I did. I just did whatever they said to do. So I decided I was going to do a literature review, read every study I could on every intentional weight loss method. And I was going to find the method that worked the best the most, the one that had the highest level of efficacy. And that's what I was going to do because I was going to approach this scientifically instead of just randomly like I had been. Mm -hmm. I read all these studies, so many studies, 
And then I was so like in shock and denial about what I found that I went back and I read them all again. So I did my literature review twice and I was like doing calculations by hand and like how, what did I miss? Because what I found was that there wasn't a single study, not one, where more than a tiny fraction of people were successful at long-term significant weight loss. Mm. Right. So the study conclusion would be everyone who complied succeeded at weight loss. But then when you dug into it, 68% of the people dropped out and then the rest of them lost five pounds in two years right? An amount of weight I could lose right now with a loofah and a haircut. And so when you really start to look like in the, the, the science, the research that was allowed to be done was like embarrassingly poor, like fail freshman level research methods, poor Mm. the way these studies were put together, the way conclusions were drawn. And I was just shocked because you expect better from peer review. Right. You know, and even now, like in my career, I talk to healthcare practitioners and like conferences with full of doctors. And I'm like, look, you're considering these as primary sources. And that's the problem. You're being failed by the research. And then you're failing your patients because you've been failed. Like it's a cycle. So anyway, So yeah, I was like, well, crap, like as a fan of logic and math, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like this, what this says is that what has been happening to me, which is the short-term weight loss, long-term regain is what happens to, you know, 95 or more percent of people. And those, that failure rate goes up for fatter people. So like, there's basically no chance that I'm going to become thin to be healthy. So like, what else is there? And that's when I started finding concepts around like weight neutral care and health at every size, but I still hadn't found the community. And I still thought of it as like a very personal journey. Like when I look back at that, I'm like, why wasn't I screaming this from the rooftops and telling everyone I ever met, Mm. but I was very contained in this, like, this is my personal journey. So I wasn't pushing back against the cultural narrative outside of myself. I was just like, oh, for me, I'm not going to do this anymore, which is very strange. Like when I look back, because everything else, if I think something's wrong, like, I cannot help myself to speak out. You know, it's like, I, I was right, but I maybe shouldn't have said it right then to that person. You know what I mean? Like, that's my usual yeah. MO. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I still like thought your, of it as. That doesn't sound like your personality to just keep it to yourself. No. And I think I just, like, I had been so thoroughly inundated besides the concepts of like white supremacy, the idea that I could be thin if I wanted to, and it would make me healthy had been sold to me more aggressively than anything else in my life. Mm-hmm. by more people than anyone else in my life. Again, except for white supremacy. And I just, I think that I just wasn't breaking out of that. And so I was just conceptualizing it as like a me journey. Mm-hmm. That's very, mm, I think, understandable considering how it was, you're being attacked at every angle on weight loss tactics and dieting your entire life these messages it's scary to stand up against one person it's another thing to stand up against an entire system yeah and at the time I was a business operations consultant Mm -hmm. so it's not like I had a platform where I was talking about this this was totally outside of my day-to-day right you know, and so I was involved with all these businesses that were my clients and like, that was what I was focused on. And so this just seemed like my own, like little personal health journey or body journey or whatever. So I think that, you know, as I became an activist in transition and got a platform, I was able to push back a lot more, but I don't, I don't feel like I, I don't think I really felt like I had anything to say in that realm. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So when did you start to spread the word. And I, when did you come across the community? I'm assuming that was connected. The community was like the last step. 
there are embarrassing things about that that I will explain. So I started to do competitive ballroom dance. Mm, okay. And I started out like dancing with a friend of mine at, you know, Sunday night lessons at a gay bar, a gay country Western bar in Austin where I was living. And we found out we could compete. And so we like, it was a rush to get costumes and to learn all the dances and to go to the first competition. And so I naively honestly thought it was going to be about my dancing. And for the crowd performance, it was, I, you know, I had been a cheerleader dancer. I've been a performer all my life. And so as a newcomer, often people look like they are scared to death because they are scared to death. Uh, right. But for me, I was performing. And so I became like, I got a lot of crowd support for that reason. But then the judges would say things like, you're going to lose weight, right? Like what a waste of talent at your size, somebody said to me. And I was like, what the... And so I was a few competitions in and I was sick. And so I had done my dances. I had a terrible day. I should have scratched, right? But I, so I'm, I have all of my dresses and makeup and everything that you take down and I'm trying to get it back up to my hotel room. Mm-hmm. And I walk out of the ballroom and I watch for the elevator and I hear these like footsteps and I turn around and this judge is like charging at me. And so I like take two steps back and I'm like up against the wall by the elevator. And she's like, we need to talk about your waltz. And I was like, yeah, it wasn't a good day. I'm sorry. And she said, no, it was that dress. And I was like, what? Like, you know, when you're sick and you're just not like super fast on the uptake. And I was like, what? Cause I, and I had a new dress. It was beautiful. It was velvet with red embroidery and spaghetti straps. It's a gorgeous dress. I still have it and wear it to this day. She said, I couldn't stand to look at you. I had this moment where I was like, all right, do I go off on this person or do I like be quote unquote classy? And basically what I determined was that I was tired and sick. And so I just said, okay. (laughs) And that was not the answer she wanted. And so she said again, I couldn't stand to look at you. And I said, okay. And she said it a couple more times and then she put her finger in my face and she was like, you have no business wearing spaghetti straps and like spittle is flying and like the veins are bulging out of her. I mean, that might not be true. That might be me like hyperbolizing, but like definitely like in my face, red face pointing at me. And in that moment, I was like, bing, this has nothing to do with me, right? This is her body insecurity. And she's trying to give that to me. And like, I want a wee for Christmas. So I'm going to pass. And she said, I, I talked to your coach and he said, I could talk to you about this. And I was like, well, I'm 30. So you don't have to ask permission to talk to me. I said, and in truth, I probably won't choose to change the dress, but I appreciate you taking the time to tell me it's such a problem for you. And her face got so red. I legitimately thought she was going to take a swing at me. Like I was thinking like, do I drop my stuff? Like, how do I, what do I do? And so she just, she turned around and stormed off. And that was the moment when I realized like, I just wanted to be a fat dancer, but I would have to be a fat activist to get it done. That this wasn't just about me. This was about other people because I told like being me, I told everyone that this had happened. And I was very lucky that people were incredibly supportive. And like, do you want us to get her off your judging panels? And like, do you want us to say something? But it turned out other people started coming up to me, other fat dancers and saying, yeah, she did it to me too. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is like not okay. But everyone else was really ashamed And so didn't tell anyone. And so again, luck and privilege and personality, I was just like, no, like everybody needs to know this happened. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of the moment I became a fat activist and started to see like, and I started a blog, my blog dances with fat again, to write about like my personal experiences as a fat ballroom dancer. Mm -hmm. And then I started to write more conceptually about, you know, the ideas of body acceptance. I still didn't know there was a 
community. I, I said <laughs> one time uh, that the only two things you can tell from somebody's body size are what their size is and what your prejudices about that are. And somebody said to me, oh, actually, Marilyn Juan already said that. And I was like, who now? And that is how I learned about the community. So there are these incredibly embarrassing blog posts at the beginning of my blog where I think that I'm like making discoveries. Right. <laughs> which is like a ridiculous exercise in my ego. But yeah, so I then learned about Marilyn and Fatso and the community. And like, that's how I, so I kind of like backed into the whole thing. And I was like, oh my God, like this is the fat studies reader shadows on a tyro. This has been going on since the sixties. And in fact, the fat underground started the same year as the Stonewall riots. Wow. And so as someone who's both queer and fat to see the ways that those two movements have changed and what has happened mm -hmm. for those communities is an interesting kind of thing to study as an activist. But yeah, that's how it happened. A judge told me she couldn't stand to look at me. And that was the final like straw that broke wow. the fat girl's back. Wow. And it was really out of necessity, like your activist role, you kind of had to speak up for yourself in that moment and spread the word. And then that's when it clicked for you. Like this is yeah. something I need to keep talking about specifically yeah. in the dance world. And then it expanded. Yeah, exactly. I wrote a piece. I can't remember. I think it was like 386,126 unhelpful things. Basically, I just counted the number of negative body images I got myself about myself in 24 hours. Oh right from billboards, magazines, the grocery store, completely unscientific. And then extrapolated that 24 hours to a year. Mm. It was over like 300 and over 370,000 negative things that I would hear about myself in a year if that 24 hours was represented. And so I wrote a piece about that and it got picked up by Jezebel. Oh, wow. Somebody, I mean, I thought like six people were reading my blog, including my mom. So I have no idea who found that and like, <laughs> let them know about it, but they published it. And that was how my blog started to get notoriety but I am the world's worst marketer. So I didn't even have a sign up, a subscription, nothing. So I got like 10,000 views in one day. I was like, this is the most I will ever get. I'm happy. And also none of these people have any way to follow me or know who I am. I didn't have contact information, nothing. And so a friend of mine, who's an internet marketer was like head desking. And he's like, look, look you got to get this together. And luckily Jezebel did a follow-up piece to the piece I had written. And so that's how my blog kind of started to get a following. Okay. That's so cool to hear the background in that. That's so funny. Well, it just goes to show that when you have a voice and you care about what you're talking about, people are going to flock to you, whether you have the marketing skills or not. Like <laughs> if you have something people want to hear or that is a relief for many people to hear. I'm sure many people heard that and were like, finally, someone speaking out against this. It's going to spread like rapid fire, in my opinion. Yeah, well, and I mean, a lot of that is, you know, luck and privilege too. Yeah. Like I'm, you know, as a white person, I have automatic authority more than a lot of people of color do. I'm currently able-bodied and neurotypical. I had a background in education that helped me. Like there's a lot there that, mm -hmm. you know, other people who have been doing the work and who currently do the work don't get the attention that I do because of those things. Yeah. So that's a very, that's a valid point for sure. For sure. So you have this Jezebel article and the follow-up and then I'm still waiting to hear how you connected to this community because I think you were really the first person who exposed me to this community and I, I was mind blown when I first heard you speak so how did you get connected in and what was that like for you 
So the community was incredibly like open and generous to me and forgiving about those posts where I didn't understand that other people had been doing this work for, you know, a really long time. And it was, I mean, it was also part of the time, like the ways community are online right now is very different to where it was at Mm -hmm. that time. And so I started to get connected and like meet people in person. got to have lunch with Lindo Bacon and I got to meet Deb Burgard and Mm -hmm. hang out with her at at an ASDA conference. And I, you know, thought about, I was thinking about moving to San Francisco to the Bay area where Marilyn Wong lives. And she like took a whole day out of her life to like drive me around the Bay area and show me places and hang out. And now she lives near me and we're friends, but this, the community was incredible in the ways that it embraced me, that my work got shared around. And I was still a bit doing, I was doing turnaround CEO work at that time. Mm. And so it was for me a little bit of an escape because turnaround CEO work is incredibly stressful. Well, at least like I can go blog and like get my frustrations out about this. And it became, the community became like a refuge for me in that way too. Wow. That's, that's really beautiful to hear, you know, and I hope people listening to this look into many of the names you've mentioned today, just so they can kind of open their eyes a little bit to this really safe, accepting place. All right. So you've joined the community and I I wanted to read you another quote from your blog (laughs) and ask you about it. Okay, reading me to me. <laughs> yes. Awkward. <laughs> Awkward, but we love it. That's so, awesome. <laughs> you said, I am an unwavering advocate for size acceptance. The civil rights fact that fat people have the right to live in fat bodies. It doesn't matter why they're fat, what, quote, the consequences of being fat might be, and whether we want to or even can become thin. I wanted to ask you about this statement because when I read it, I, I love it in the fact that it points out the assumption that everyone expects fat people to lose weight and that they should be living in that mindset 24-7. And you're saying, no, actually, we have the right to live in a fat body if that's what we want and if that's the, if that's what we choose for ourselves. So can you explain kind of that mindset and how you broke free from that feeling of having to lose weight? Yes. So I had, I mean, the research doing that, that literature review broke me of the desire to lose weight, right? right? I started to be like, if you want me to lose, you know, to try to lose weight again, you're going to have to provide me some evidence that refutes my knowledge of this. Mm -hmm. And again, there's a lot of privilege in having the education to do that. It wasn't that somebody told me and I had to trust their knowledge. It was that I had read the studies. Mm-hmm. But I was still, even at the beginning, and you can see this in my, some of my earlier blog posts, I was still like wrapped up in like ide- healthist ideas, mm-hmm. right? I used to talk about my own metabolic health numbers as like, you know, as if that was, I don't know, representative. And I do think it's important to be clear that if supporting someone's health is something that they want to do, there are ways to do that outside of a weight loss paradigm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's important to understand, but I think it's, that can never detract from the fact that it doesn't matter. Like if there are health impacts to being fat or how, cause we get this idea. Oh, well, if you're fat, we can tell you're not prioritizing your health. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know what else shows that the NFL, right? If you're a professional athlete in the NFL, I can tell you're not prioritizing your health, right? <laughs> but we worship those folks because they're risking their short and long-term health in the hopes that they will someday win a piece of jewelry. 
So mm-hmm. somehow that's different. But once, once I really started to see the hypocrisy in it and the ways that healthism was used to reinforce weight stigma, I always try to be really clear about that. So it's this idea that you have to lose weight to be healthy is erroneous, but the idea that you have to be healthy to deserve respectful treatment and, you know, a life without oppression is also erroneous. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. And there's so many people in thin bodies who might not necessarily be healthy, but everyone looks at them and thinks, oh, they must work out all the time. They must be really healthy. You have to look at the world through multiple lenses. Why are we caring how, well, this sounds, it's like we should, a person's health isn't our business. That No, that's exactly right. So there's, this is like multi-level. So first of all, health is a really gooey, amorphous concept. Mm. especially in our culture, we like to act like you could throw a dart and hit health or like <laughs> you get the health trophy, but what is healthy when you start to break it down? Like, cause they'll say, Oh, it's the absence of disease. Oh, so if someone is born with a chronic condition, then their health is just out the window for them. Oh, well, no. Okay. Well, what if, you know, what about circumstances? And so there's a lot, health is really like gooey and not necessarily a super helpful global concept mm-hmm. in the way that we use it. So there's that it's not a, you know, an obligation, like I said, the NFL, there's an Olympic sport called skeleton where you go 80 miles an hour down an ice shoot face first. This does not prioritize the health, (laughs) right? But I like to watch it and people like to do it and that's all fine. But like, let's be honest, health is not an obligation. It's not a barometer of worthiness, right? That's just healthism. Mm-hmm. And it's not entirely within our control. We've got social determinants of health. We've got the ways that oppression impacts health. Racism is a public health crisis mm-hmm. in our culture that often gets treated like something that people of color are responsible for like dealing with on their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, the whole concept of health is really messy. I cannot recommend enough Deshaun Harrison's book, Belly of the Beast. Okay. To really kind of talk about this stuff. And Sabrina Strings, the racial origins of fat phobia. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, Sabrina Strings, fearing the black body, mm-hmm. the racial origins of fat phobia. Again, incredible work. But this, the way that this is rooted in racism and the way that it still does more harm, disproportionate harm to black, indigenous, and other people of color is something that we really need to understand. Absolutely. I just wanted to make sure everyone listening is aware a little bit more about the medical fat phobia that exists. So could you briefly explain kind of the background for those who aren't aware? Sure. So medicine is kind of starting in the thirties and then evolving over time has become very focused on weight as a middleman to health. And so you see it with like the idea of body mass index, which is just a fancy ratio of weight and height and the concepts of quote unquote obesity and quote unquote overweight, which were literally made up to pathologize fat bodies. Like we think of them as really sciencey, but the term obese is from the Latin root that just means to eat until fat, which is both not the experience of every fat person and not like a sciencey medical term. And so when you do, when you add like numbers, like body mass index, it's, it makes it sound legitimate and scientific. Body mass index is just your weight in pounds times 703 divided by your height in inches squared. It's literally just a ratio of weight and height. And again, these things are deeply rooted in racism. Mm -hmm. That has become the way that medicine is practiced. And this causes a lot of problems at every level. So research often doesn't include fat people. So like the plan B morning after pill doesn't work for people who weigh more than 176 pounds. And that was not well publicized. People are taking this really vital and critical medication without any understanding that it wasn't developed for them. 
the COVID vaccine trials were considered groundbreaking because they included fat people at the same percentages that we exist in the world. Normally that doesn't happen. So there's wow. research bias, tools and best practices aren't developed for fat people. And then we get blamed if they don't work for us. Mm. Training is deeply rooted in weight stigma in ways that when you pathologize a body and then you have someone whose training is that their job is to eliminate pathology, you end up with a really eugenics relationship between doctors and fat patients, right? Where they're, they see this as a walking pathology to eliminate before they do anything else. So I, every fat person I know has a story where they went to the doctor for like a broken toe, strep throat, and were told to lose weight, right? And the doctor just could not get their focus off weight loss. And so that's another way that it impacts patients is that then people are given evidence-based treatments right away, whereas fat people are told, you know, to diet which can delay care indeterminately if they're not given the same treatment as the thin person the same day they walk in. So that's a, a, you know, another big piece of the issue with weight stigma and healthcare. And so it's every level. And then what, what our system does right now is perpetuate weight cycling, which is that yo-yo dieting, right? Which most people will do. And weight cycling has been associated with um, cardiovascular issues with increased inflammation and Bacon and Aframore in their paper found that it could explain the entire mortality that was credited to being fat in both the Framingham and the NHANES. Mm, wow. We've got a healthcare system in theory, healthcare that perpetuates weight stigma and weight cycling and inequalities in healthcare, and then blames fat bodies for the harm that results, and then uses that harm to justify more weight stigma, weight cycling, and healthcare inequalities. And so it's this vicious cycle that fat people get caught up in, where we're being prescribed something that fails 95% of the time. And then when we, even if a doctor does understand, even if they're trying to come from a health at every size, weight neutral perspective, they don't have access to the tools that they need and the best practices they need to take the best care of fat patients. Because we have this idea that if fatness is the quote unquote cause for inequality, then inequality is justified, right? So if the MRI isn't big enough for your patient, oh, well, I guess they don't get an MRI. It's not like this is an outrage and we need to fix this. And patients of all sizes need, you know, adequate tools. That's not how we view it. And so that again, perpetuates that inequality of healthcare that then perpetuates harm that then gets blamed on fat bodies. Wow. Well, that sounds like a big disaster. <laughs> Total big disaster, a deadly disaster for many fat people. Yeah. A deadly disaster. And I am so grateful and so thankful that there are people out there making a difference in the medical world, like yourself and printing out these these Hayes health sheets and spreading the word. I I've worked at two hospitals before I had my own practice and I saw fat phobia everywhere. It's yeah. like latent in the medical field. It's really disappointing to me because yeah. we trust doctors blindly. We blindly trust medical professionals. Yeah. Deb Regard was the first person who like, I read it so clearly. She said, we diagnose in thin people or what we prescribe to fat people. Mm -hmm. Right. So the behaviors that we prescribe to fat people as quote unquote diets would be, are considered red flags for eating disorders in thinner people. And that should be an obvious problem. But what scares me is how much the healthcare complex in general is willing to double down on this. So finally we're admitting, right. So the first study that showed a 95% failure rate of dieting was in 1959. 
And it's been replicated through the years. It's been admitted by the United States government, the Australian government, and, and last year by Canadian a panel of obesity, quote unquote, obesity experts. So this is not new information. Yeah. So finally, they're saying like, okay, that doesn't work. So what we need to do then is extreme solutions that are even more harmful to fat people, right? So we'll do surgeries that risk fat people's lives and quality of life and take a healthy organ and put it into a disease state to force behaviors that mimic an eating disorder. And we'll call that like healthcare, or we'll say now drug manufacturers are trying, I just gave an interview to the uh, official magazine of the American Chemical Society, which is, you know, assuring that I will never again lose a game of two truths and a lie. But they were talking about diet drugs. And these drug manufacturers are pushing this narrative that live just simply being fat is a chronic lifelong health condition that warrants lifelong treatment, which like is convenient if you're selling drugs that don't make people healthier or thinner to say, well, if you're still fat, you need more drugs like that. You know, I can see where that from a marketing perspective, but it scares me that this obsession with making fat people thin has reached such a level in healthcare that people are not separating it. The, I just saw the Mayo Clinic has a program where there's a BMI limit for organ transplant. So if you're above a certain BMI, you can't get a transplant, but they have this new program where first they'll put you on an extreme restriction diet. And if you don't meet the BMI requirement with that, then they'll still give you the transplant, but only if you agree to have quote unquote weight loss surgery at the same time, oh <laughs> which like, I'm trying to blog about it, but like, all I can do is like F bomb. So I'm having to like back up mm-hmm. from it and try to like gain some perspective so I can write about it in a way that isn't just me screaming. Yeah. That sounds so That's- dangerous what I've got, right? Like the idea that undernourishing a body prior and like, there's good research that shows that having, you know, extreme weight loss before surgery does not improve outcomes that weight loss surgeries does not improve outcomes. And yet we're still doing this. Like you're, you're quota, you're, you're telling me I'm too fat for one surgery. So you'll give me two after an extreme period of undernourishment. And this is what one of the foremost clinics in the world thinks is a good idea. Yeah. Sounds like a train wreck being undernourished and then having another surgery in that state. I wanted to dive into another thing related to your activist work and medical fat phobia. And this is the new project that you just completed called the Hayes Health Sheets. And would you please share with those listening what that project actually is and why it's so important? Yes, I'm so excited about this. So Hayes, H-A-E-S, standing for health at every size, Hayes Health Sheets. So basically the idea was I get tons of emails from people who are going to the doctor or went to the doctor and they were told by the health practitioner, like weight loss is the only solution for this mm-hmm. or weight loss is the correct solution for this. And so I wanted uh, there to be like something they could print out diagnosis specific that would give them information. And so I reached out to Dr. Louise Metz, Louise Metz, who is a health at every size based internal medicine physician and Tiana Dodson, who is a health coach and also a web developer. And so we together created these sheets. So they're diagnosis specific weight neutral healthcare guides. And so they're meant for use by practitioners, but also patients and advocates. And then the site also has a big resource bank that has different like advocacy cards you can print out as well as links to research. Mm. If people want to get into that. And then there's a page called why we don't recommend weight loss, which is something like you could point uh, somebody to, to understand why weight loss does not meet the criteria of evidence-based ethical health and healthcare intervention. So it's a project we launched in March. We've got like 
over 80,000 um, hits at this point. And we're just super thrilled that it's out there in the world. That is such a cool project and so important. Have you heard of anyone bringing these into your doctors? Like what are some success stories from this? Yeah, so I hear from a lot, you know, daily now people who either they took it to their healthcare practitioner and it helped them have a discussion about the alternatives uh, for care from healthcare practitioners themselves who have used it and changed the way that they're practicing. One of my favorite success stories, this was free, the health sheets, but I got an email from a doctor who said, I started hate reading your blog six months ago. (laughs) And at this point, I'm transitioning my practice to be fully health at every size. And I just want to thank you for your work and let you know that it had an impact. And like, you know, that's not like an everyday thing, but it's like, it keeps me going. Like this had an impact on somebody. And, you know, once you start being confronted with the evidence and opening up your, I, your mind to the idea that we might've been getting this very wrong for a very long time, mm-hmm. there's, you know, change is possible. So yeah, I hear from people who work as patient advocates who use the sheets in their advocacy. So yeah, it's, I, it's definitely like a, it's one of those things, a lot of my work, like, I feel like I have a dream job that I wish wasn't necessary mm. you know, with the world as it is the work that I get to do full-time is exactly what I want to be doing and I wish that work didn't need to be done and I could go like be a stand-up comic or something and just like abandon you know not abandon but like not need to do it because right. the work wouldn't. so it's like a weird situation so I'm thrilled that they're out there I'm thrilled that people are you know able to use them to get the care that they deserve but I wish that none of it was necessary Mm-hmm. I'm in the same boat as you because I wish nobody <laughs> had eating disorders and I have a dream job that I wish would fire me, you know, like right. I wish no one needed me anymore. <laughs> yeah, just trying to work ourselves out of a job. <laughs> exactly. Wow. So the, that's such a, an amazing project. And I'm sure we could talk about this all day, but we have run out of time. Reagan, you are a true light. And i it's just an honor to bring your voice to my audience because I know there are a lot of people who need to hear this. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's, I mean, it really is so important, the work that you're doing. And I really am just, it's an honor to get to, to be here and be with you. So thank you very, very much. Uh, Well, you're so welcome. And everyone listening, I am going to drop all the important links in the show notes so you can get in contact with Reagan and check out her work. And yes, I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening.